So Steve Smith, welcome to Tell a Friend. Good to be here. Now, despite lockdown easing, we are still very much in the midst of a global pandemic, and we're already feeling the effects of that pandemic. Could you talk to me about how Exeter University has risen to the challenges that have been brought about by this health crisis? Well, there's a number of ways. I mean, the really interesting thing is, of course, there was no manual in order to go to it and say pandemics, what to do in the case of, you know, we've had to learn a lot from uh, scratch. I'd say basically the big thing we've learned is that the institution can move very quickly and do things. We've moved everything online, as you know. Assessments went really well this year. Uh, in fact, we've had fewer complaints than in a normal year, which is not what we expected. Professional staff um, have worked really hard with academics. Our relationship with the Guild has been fantastic. The Guild and the Student Union in Penryn We've learned that working with them is absolutely mission critical because you get a, the one thing you get, Brian, is you get a lot of voices telling you what they want and actually what you need is someone to discuss with and the Guild has been fantastically supportive as, and students actually, in the, in the vast main number of students have been really uh, understanding and aware that uh, you know it's not gonna be easy in this situation. Then of course, you're too, as a matter of some pride, realise the contribution that both students and staff are making to the crisis. You know, the number of medical students who graduated early and the diagnostic radiography students who graduated early so they can go on to the front line. Um, and also all the academic colleagues who are working um, uh, on COVID. I've just come from a briefing where three of them have made presentations on the drug discovery work and their treatments. And you know, so we're in, we're, we're plugged into all of those things. We're one of the ten institutions that is most involved in in research into COVID. So for all of those reasons, that's gone well. Um, I think I hadn't. What hasn't gone so well? I hadn't prepared really and mentally for the the kind of mental effect, the toll on mental health of the people I work with, um, because you're suddenly working from home. And there's nothing, there's no difference then between home life and work life. And therefore, um, I think people work ridiculous hours. Certainly the first three weeks of the crisis, a group of us worked every day, including Saturdays and Sundays, um, just trying to manage the, the community. Um, so I think the big lesson is uh, we've, at the, the, the community's adapted well. I think some of the potential downsides financially are, just frightening um, and that's worrying us a lot at the moment how we deal with those but the basic thing is you know the community's come very well and the community has never been more established in its home base working with the populations of Exeter, Devon and Cornwall you know incredible work with the local authorities the health service the police all these organizations transport the student base but it's been a massive learning journey have you been able to calculate the economic impact that it's had on our university? Yeah, it's real well. So for this year, um, I think we've it's probably cost us nearly thirty million between March and now. Fifteen million in the return of student third term accommodation costs, 
um, eight or nine million in terms of uh, the money we were investing in moving things online and about six million involved in all the additional stuff we've had to do to make the, the campus safe. I mean, the, the health and safety testing, 120 buildings, there's an enormous amount that's had to go into that. Um, so that's one thing. Next year, we're looking at a number of uh, estimates, but, but we were expecting 103 million pounds worth of international student fees next year. You can argue which, what's it gonna be, but if you said half of that will go, that wouldn't be a bad estimate. And of course, governors have the ultimate authority of having to make sure the institution is financially sound. So they are going to um, come back with saying, well, what are you going to do if it's 100? So this year, okay, it's going to hit our surplus for this year that we're kind of legally required to make. But next year is the year we're worried about. And I suppose the ultimate issue is it a one-year problem or is it, are we in for several years of this? In which case, I think it's going to have a massive effect, not just on Exeter, but across the whole educational system. Now, as you point out there, the recruitment of students in the upcoming year is a point of concern for some universities. And I've heard students, you know, voice their concerns and their apprehensions about going into academia in a year full of such uncertainty. Do you sympathise with these students and their fears around the pandemic? Yeah. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, they've just they they've had the most awful um, period to make these decisions in. Um, and so, for, for for let's assume eighteen-year-olds for a second. But for eighteen-year-olds, they've had this all this spring with with virtually no person-to-person uh, -person teaching. Exams have been cancelled. Then they're going to university and no one is quite sure what the university experience is going to be in the autumn. I mean, but two points. One, I think um, all the evidence is that students really want to go on campus next year. We've got a lot of data which is telling us, I mean, we're, you know, the UK is uh, up on the number of uh, students confirming their place compared to the same date last year. And secondly, you know, um, We've certainly, we've, we've, as of today, we've got 499 more students who want to come this year than the same day last year. So unless there's a second wave that's massive, um, I think a lot of people feel that, that students will want to, to come. Of course, one other point, do they really want to stay at home? What are they going to do? Um, are they going to do gap years? Are they going to work? I mean, that's, those options aren't as great. So the other is, I think we think they will come the difficulty, of course, is we can't be sure um, as to what that year is going to look like. And we've made a lot of work, done a lot of work on um, on social distancing, on building design, on one-way systems, on uh, air quality systems. We're doing all that and getting everything in. You know, everyone will get their, their, their personal protection. Everyone will get the hand sanitizer and thermometer. We'll test on entry to buildings. We'll do all that. But then that's only part of the student life. What about... What about um, societies? What about guild activities? What about sport? So all of these things we're kind of concerned about because we're not sure uh, the way that will go. It all depends on the second wave. And I think that's where Exeter, like every institution's in a difficult place. And for the students coming in, my gut feeling, and it's easy for me to say, I guess, my gut feeling is people should still go. The evidence of transmission amongst 
young people, as you know, is very, very low indeed. And I'm leading a group at the moment in, in, in UK meetings on what international students might have to do in terms of quarantine. Um, so it's changing so quickly. And with the announcement of, of, of the countries, 59 countries that you can come to for, to the UK from without having to uh, uh, quarantine, it's changing all the time. But there's no doubt to your main point that uh, this is a really tough year. Do you feel that universities are being supported by the government? Yes, I do, actually. And when you compare what's happening here to some other countries, um, I was on the ministerial task force that um, has come up with the research sustainability uh, plan announced last weekend. That's a plan to underwrite 80% of lost international student fee income. Um, and as you know, international student fee income basically cross-subsidizes the research base. Um, that's what half of it goes on. Um, so we've got uh, some uh, underpinning and some kind of guarantee uh, from government that, that that would be the case. And 80% um, of international uh, student fee income uh, covered, um, if you assume half of the international student fee income goes, that's sizable, over £2 billion pounds across subsidy, uh, sorry, uh, underwriting. Now, it's mainly loans, 75% loans, 25% grants, but government does realise the centrality of the research base. Um, we've also, in return, agreed to limit our number of students next year to no more than 5% uh, UK students more than last year, which is to stabilise the system, because otherwise a number of institutions would take lots of students. But I think government has been abundantly clear that it wants the research base to, to thrive and thus institutions that have got strong research which use international student fee income to support that, I think really have been well supported. Uh, the trouble is, no one knows how far it's going to go. No one, have, no one knows where the bottom of this is. And I think that's the most difficult thing. But we certainly feel government has listened. You, you'll also be aware they've made major changes on post-study work on three years now, post-study work for international students. So they're listening to us. Um, but obviously, they're in a situation where jobs are going every day of the week and they've got companies that are going to them that, that might well close. Universities are not in that situation, but that doesn't mean it's not going to be difficult in the autumn. Now, I want to shift our attention to racism on the university campus. Now, on the 3rd of June, a group of students, myself included, came together to form a collective called the Unlearn Collective. And we wrote an open letter to both the university and the university guild with a list of policies aimed at fostering an anti-racist culture. And I wanted to ask you, what was your reaction to the letter that we wrote to you and also the list of recommendations we made? OK, well, firstly, thanks for the letter. And... Um, we have had a number of representations, as you may be aware, in the last year uh, on this issue. And so firstly, all of those recommendations are actively, as we speak today, um, being considered. We are a number of them were in train anyway, but a number of the suggestions. I mean, I think the most difficult one is going to be the values point is my personal view, um, because this whole issue creates a lot of noise and a lot of heat. But what we want to establish more than anything else is that this is this has got to be a campus that does better 
than it's done previously on not just responding when things have happened, but on and on creating an anti-racist um, environment. The whole point um, uh, of, of recent events, and I, and I wrote in, a, in an open letter to all the staff and students, my personal shame as VC in 18 years, one of the things I've failed at is we've acted decisively when things have happened, but we've not been able, um, and, I, and, and, you know, I have to take responsibility for this. We've not been able uh, to prevent uh, racist incidents on campus. We try and act um, to support people when they have happened. And we act decisively with people that, that, that we, we can prove have undertaken things uh, that we can genuinely consider racist. But um, that is an area in which the provost and our executive lead, Linda Pika, who works on uh, diversity and inclusion, they are absolutely committed to working with the community to come up with things about how to alter um, the culture that allows these things um, to, to, to kind of happen. Where we've found it very difficult, to be honest, in a, a number of the things have been um, uh, anonymous, as you know, and that's difficult. But I think trying to make sure that all societies are aware um, of uh, the need to be anti-racist, to try and ensure that in all our uh, briefings and in all our um, uh, uh, orienting to, uh, to for, for new students, that in, in those processes, what we do is we try and make sure that the students understand the values uh, of the institution. And we actually make it clear that we expect students to and staff to adhere to those values. Um, the difficulty is for us that there is a strong legal framework in which we have to operate. And therefore you get people coming on campus saying things invited by people, um, people who we wouldn't want on campus, but we have obligations under the law uh, as, to our, as to making sure that we promote free speech. But I think what you'll find is in response to that letter and other events of the last year, there is going to be a continuation of a massive amount of work to uh, make sure the campus isn't isn't something kind of soft and liberal. It's, it's anti-racist. The values actually try and ensure that no one uh, is uh, feels uncomfortable uh, because of their race and a whole series of other protected characteristics. But it seems to me race is the area where people have felt it that they've been able to say things, especially on anonymous. Um, uh, uh, chaps uh, systems you know people have said things that you just can't accept so the letter and the interventions of lots of people I think have been really really decisively helpful and we will work with you the signatories to that letter the departments that have written to us over the practical things we can do and luckily the letter suggested a lot of them. Now which specific reforms are you planning on implementing? So I think we we certainly want to work with our friends in the guild over societies. Um, we want to try and make sure that every society is aware of its obligations and the code of conduct under which we want to operate the institution in terms of um, anti-racism. We like the idea very much of training for new students that come in, um, awareness raising. We want to make sure that we have a discussion with the community about decolonizing the curriculum um, 
that seems, you know, I mean, to be honest with you, in some ways, the, the curriculum being decolonized is actually one of the most straightforward things because individual members of staff absolute freedom to teach what they want to teach. And we would strongly encourage and support those parts of the university that have been involved in decolonizing their areas to continue. But it does seem to me that trying to promote awareness of anti-racism seems to me to be the central movement that we've got to undertake so that what we can do is make sure that every student, every staff member knows that the values of the institution um, are, 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 are promoted. What I don't want to do is, is to focus on what we do if people don't follow the rules, because by the time that happens, it's too late. And that's, I think what we've tried to do before is deal with things when, it when they happen. And it seems to me we've actually got to try and focus on inclusion, on social justice, on uh, providing a safe environment for everyone, regardless of race and ethnicity, sexual orientation, the lot. But what we've got to do is focus on that as the core value. And anti-racism, I think, is a very large part of it. And it's something that I think everyone in the institution would accept. We haven't got right before. Now, you mentioned there um, that you support the teaching uh, of people coming into the university about tolerance and about inclusivity. But in our letter, we definitively said that we wanted to make this mandatory. Do you support making it mandatory? I think, to be honest with you, that's something we need to discuss with the community. My personal view is we should have a series of um, processes whereby everyone coming in knows the values of respect and treating people in a tolerant, inclusive way. I'd be completely happy as an individual for that to be mandatory. The issue is we've got to work with the Students Guild, um, with the Students Union down in Penryn, but also with the staff and, and, uh, of the institution to work out whether that's what they wish to do. So what we'll do is Bust um, and, and uh, Linda Pika going to have that discussion about the kind of training um, we want to put in place and the awareness raising so we make sure that the values of the university are much more upfront than they may otherwise hitherto have been. Because one of the reasons why we wrote the letter is because a lot of the talk around this, especially from the university but also from the guild and the students, tends to be quite vague. It's all about having discussions and we'll talk about this or you know we'll, we'll talk with the community that it's about pinning the university and the guild on specific points and I think on the issue of making uh, diversity training mandatory I, I don't see how anyone would agree with that. Okay the content of that you can debate but making it mandatory I think is pretty much essential. I mean we've had the Bracton Law Society, we've had incidents online, it's it seems rather essential to me. Yeah, I think I think the complication, of course, is that if you make something, if you phrase it, and this is a very personal view, I guess, if you frame it solely in terms of anti-racism, which I 100% sign up to, have no issue with, we've got to make sure that we 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 don't lose other forms of discrimination and inclusivity. So I like the idea of, of everyone who comes in being made aware, 
everyone coming in made aware of our policies on diversity and on inclusion, on social justice, mutual respect, tolerance, freedom of speech, all these things. I, I actually think everyone, or I would hope everyone, would agree with those principles. And I think that's the way to do it. And I know, I know from discussions that I've been having in the last week with our provost, that that is very much on the card. So I suspect that what you'll see coming, although I'm of course leaving as you know, um, I think you'll see uh, increased training and uh, 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 orientation really on the issue of, of diversity and respect. Um, and I, it seems to me, it's very difficult to argue with those as principles that as a university we should undertake. Whether that, to be blunt, Brian, solves the problem is going to be really difficult. But you're right, it's got to be, what we've done up to now has not. And therefore, we need to try things differently that enable us to make real headroom in trying to alter the behaviour and the views of what I hope and I believe is a small number of people um, in the institution who really um, say things and do things and think things that I find incredibly objectionable. As you say there, you are a champion of diversity and inclusion, but I wanted to ask you, you are now at the end of your tenure, why isn't the university senior management as diverse as you would wish it to be? Yeah, um, so it's diverse in some measures, but not others. Um, gender is, um, is a good balance. It's, uh, it's, it varies around the 40 to 50% female. Um, ethnicity is the big failure. Um, and it is, having been here 18 years, um, with the governing body, with the uh, senior management, we have gone out of our way. We've tried various measures to attract people from different backgrounds, uh, underrepresented backgrounds in the institution, to apply for jobs with us. We've spent about four years advertising in um, outlets which are not the standard outlets. We now have a particular mandate with the governing body that we want to make sure we have ethnic diversity on the governing body. We've just actually are about to announce next week um, uh, a person of colour to come onto the governing body next student that we've persuaded to join the governing body. Um, she's in her 20s, um, which will do something as well for age on the governing body. The, the truthful answer is that um, it's terribly difficult if you don't get applications from people and you go out and you try and you, you advertise in certain journals, you um, in the job spec, you say things which of course people may think you believe, they may not think you believe. Um, and of course, you've, you know all this backward. The central problem, our, our chancellor years ago, uh, or the current chancellor, Fluella Benjamin, you know, always says that we, uh, we appointed the first uh, Afro-Caribbean female chancellor in the British University. And we took a chance on that because there was a backlash at the time from, as she knows only too well. But we appointed her and she came in and she asked me immediately why there were so few Afro-Caribbean black students at the universities. We went and we bought all the data and we showed her the grades. And that year in particular, I think from memory, 551 from memory, um, Afro-Caribbean students had got the lowest grade or better 
that people had come into the university with um, in the country. So we explained that we explained that the data to her, and we've we've improved on that each year on student body, um, which I realise you're asking about staff. On student body, the numbers are the trend is not where we want it to be, but it's it's considerably improving. On staff, it's been an issue that we have pretty much standardly tried to ensure that in every major interview panel, we have people from different backgrounds um, being interviewed. Um, and then it's a question of, of who gets the job on the day. But you're absolutely right. It's recognized as something we want to alter and it's been recognized on the governing body. And we have brought people from different ethnic backgrounds onto the governing body. It, it's making sure we can attract those people to come to us, um, which I think is something we've got to spend time on. Now, in light of all of the racist incidents that have taken place at university, do you believe Exeter University is institutionally racist? No, I don't believe it's institutionally racist. Do I think there are people with racist attitudes? <laughs> Without any doubt, yes. But I think one of the problems is that an awful one or two people or a group of people saying things, writing things, behaving abhorrently to people. Um, uh, and there's been some very celebrated incidents of this. Um, firstly, I don't think that's the whole community. Most everyone I work with, everyone I know in the institution is disgusted by it, offended by it, wants to f do something. We spent a fortune in finances try and find out who was behind one particular incident recently and you know I'm an, I, I wrote to the head of Facebook I've tried to get certain pages banned I've employed software that detects where the where where messages have been posted from we've tried to find out and we would have acted immediately to expel those people if we'd found out we did not find out and we could not find out who those individuals were so I think there are clearly people with racist attitudes at the institution, without any doubt. In my experience, having had 18 years of talking to the student community a lot, um, I think the, the, the thing that embarrasses me most is that the institution gets this name of, 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 of being racist in the way you're describing, um, because a small number of people have, have these viewpoints. Why do I think it's a small number? I think it's a small number because... Um, in all the social media stuff we see, there's a very small amount of material like this. Doesn't mean other people don't believe it. But the trouble is even one racist incident is too many, which is why the incident the university has to move away from merely saying it doesn't like racism to be actively anti-racist. Hence the point that we need to make sure that people are aware of the importance of stressing social justice, inclusion and diversity. Now, the most famous case um, in recent years of racism on our campus was in 2018 with the Bracton Law scandal, which involved a WhatsApp group that was leaked showing racist messages being spread across a university society. And I wanted to ask you, what have been the short and long-term economic consequences of that scandal? Well, interestingly, I've never... I've never had a discussion about the economic consequences. For us, it was entirely about views and statements 
and behaviors that were completely unacceptable. So we worked incredibly closely. Um, Wendy Robinson did a major report for us and we worked closely with the law department, closely with the Bracton Law Society, closely with the Guild on all of this. We had to root out what we saw as being um, a way of uh, uh, acting that was completely unacceptable. So do I think some students, I mean, do I think it's an economic issue? No, I don't. Do I think that some students from ethnic, from minority ethnic backgrounds choose not to come to law at Exeter? Because of that, yes, I think that's true. Um, but uh, what I think is more, more important is trying to ensure that, that things like Bracton never happen again. And that was a very, I mean, the legalities are very complicated. Um, but we did what I considered to be absolutely the right thing. And there was a consequence to us in spending a lot of legal fees making sure we could uphold what we did. Um, and I'm certain that uh, it damaged us, but to be candid, it didn't, it wasn't a consideration for me about what, what the economic effect was. It was, it was not even the reputational effect as much as the fact that it was damaging to the interests and identity and, and, and the feelings of a group of, of students and staff in the institution. And, and I didn't want to be part of an institution that in which those views were commonplace and could be expressed in the way they were done. So money didn't come into it in any sense. It was, a, it was extraordinarily offensive. Whilst I understand that the economic uh, consequences weren't of concern to you at the time, what my question was asking is now, a few years after the scandal, has the university conducted any research to work out how they've been financially impacted? No. No is the straight answer. We haven't, um, we haven't looked at that question at all. Do you mean in terms of, let be clear what you mean, do you mean the financial impact of what exactly? The financial impact uh, caused by, let's say, the lack of BAME individuals choosing to come to the university, the legal costs that it involved to the university to defend itself and defend its reputation, and also the marketing costs in trying to do damage control on this. You're absolutely right. We, we know the legal, I don't know the legal figure, but there, there are clearly legal costs. We have attempted um, to market ourselves in a way, um, but the trouble is, Brian, you can't, you can't paper over cracks like that. You can't just say, oh, well, we'll, we'll spend money and market our way out of it. You've got to actually deal with the issue. And the issue is um, that it's not the kind of institution that I think anyone I work with wants to be part of. So what we did was we felt we did the right thing. I mean, excluding um, those students um, and we would do it again without any question. So in a way, the reason I'm, uh, I've said we've not looked at it is simply it wasn't about money. It was about trying to do the right thing in a situation in which none of us, no one I spoke to, would have ever wanted to be in that position. Now, looking at the university today and its future policies, how are you going to, or how is the university rather, going to make sure that any incidents of racism, sexism, or any other form of prejudice is 
reported and investigated in a transparent way. Is there going to be transparency in all of this? Yes, well, there is. There's absolute transparency with the one obvious point that you're aware of, which is you have to be ter- we have to be terribly careful about what we reveal without the permission of students concerned. We do, when every time we get any issue, we try and get permission from the student concerned or the staff member concerned to use um, the data, for example, can we, if they get messages, can we look at um, their account and see where these come from? Um, some people don't want that revealed. So we have to be terribly careful in how we, um, in, how we the, in, in respecting the, 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 the wishes of, of the people involved. But I can absolutely say that anything that comes to us through uh, Speak Out Guardians, through the harassment network, through the trade unions or the student unions, and we will always um, be open about about what we've done. Once, of course, lawyers get involved, there are then restrictions on what we can say. And crucially, we have to be terribly careful that we don't subvert justice by pronouncing people guilty without going through uh, due process. So transparency, absolutely. And there will not be an attempt to sweep anything um, under the carpet because my personal philosophy on all of this is that um, openness and transparency are the best ways of gaining the confidence of the community that the institution um, is attempting to, to solve the problems that, that, that are uh, being raised. Now, one of the issues that is rather complex to navigate is the issue of online forums. And we've seen forums such as X Honestly and Xbox rise with this anonymous um, element to it, anonymous posting. How is the university managing to look after students' safety and well-being? And also, because I think with these sites, let me uh, clarify, with these sites, it's not happening under university direction. The university has no involvement with it, but you still have a responsibility to look after your students. So how are you managing that? Yeah, well, that's a really good, I mean, it's a really crucial question because on these sites, I have spent a lot of time and we have spent a lot of time trying to get them banned. We've tried to get them taken down. We have acted immediately. We've involved the police on a number of occasions. We have, as I said earlier, employed forensic specialists to try and find where, they, where they're hosted. As you know, they can be hosted in locations and in ways that are hidden. Um, we have been, we have not been successful in getting them automatically taken down. They have been taken down. The Guild helped us a lot in attempting to get at least one of the sites taken down. The difficulty is because they're anonymous. I mean, I don't mean this as an excuse. I just mean we're not even obvious. Some, it's not obvious to us that they're actually always extra students. Some of them clearly are. But there are other people who write to me regularly. Um, I had a letter today calling me a, an overpaid um, uh, simpering coward for my attitude towards supporting the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, I'd like to know who wrote that. <laughs> but I, I, 
it's very difficult to um, get anonymous sites taken down. And we've been in touch with Nick Clegg at Facebook to try and get some purchase on this, tried nationally to try and get some purchase on it. As you know, it's a, it's a national phenomenon and, and it's really difficult for us to deal with. Now, moving on to a lighter subject, your handover. Professor Lisa Roberts will be taking over from you. And in the context of the global pandemic we're in, how have you been managing this handover process? So um, I've been with her in a meeting for three hours today already. Um, we talk all the time, it's a straightforward answer. She's outstanding. Um, she's a great choice. Um, she will, um, she and I talk um, either on uh, uh, text or email or, or we have phone calls pretty much a couple of times a week. Um, so the handover, the key point is there mustn't be uh, a cigarette paper between her view and my view. So we make sure that she's happy with all the decisions that the senior team are making, um, that she's happy with the direction of travel and make sure that she's, I mean, she's come to the last two governing body meetings. She came to the last Senate. Um, we're trying to make sure that she's involved in every decision um, because she's going to start at the first on the 1st of September and she's going to have a series of issues. Um, so we need her to be absolutely up to speed with all the concerns that the institution has got at the moment and to get her ideas in. So we've we've liaised incredibly closely um, with her. The, the provost and the registrar talk to her a couple of times a week as well. So that handover has gone really well. And I want to finally conclude with a series of quickfire questions. And I invite okay. you to complete the sentence. The first one, the greatest misconception about me is? The greatest misconception about me is that I don't feel the criticism that I get. I take it very seriously. My biggest regret is? My biggest regret is the institution has not moved on sufficiently in terms of its attitude towards ethnicity and racism. I'm most fearful of? I'm most fearful of COVID-19 being the start of a series that disrupt world education. And finally, I am proudest of. I'm proudest of the fact that Exeter is in a fundamentally different place than it was when I came and is now a forever institution that will remain one of the country's leading institutions, albeit with things absolutely that need to change. Steve Smith, thank you so much for joining me on Telephone. Thank you, it's a pleasure. 